You can grab a seat. There was a young man in, in Calvary. Uh, his name was Ben. And I was running a youth group. I was there for a few years. And um, he was just, he was a nice kid, but he was one of those kids that was always just, he's a real smart aleck. He was, just, was, was a bright kid, which didn't help things, right? Made him more dangerous. And we were outside one day, youth group, and uh, he was just, just trying to push my buttons. And he was just, you know, kind of not taking the Lord serious. And I walked over to him, and I went, bam! I punched him in the chest as hard as I, I crumpled the kid. I just crumpled him. And I said, I leaned over and I said, Ben, when are you going to stop playing games with God? I led that man to the Lord right there. There's times that that might be needed. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, man, our, our, our leadership has problems, right? Like our, our priests, uh, they have problems. Uh, there, there are times uh, where we have seen uh, issues within our church leadership. Uh, I mean, as someone in youth ministry, I'd be lying if I said there wasn't ever the urge or just that constant urge to just deck them or I don't know. But, you know, that's, you don't do that, right? That, that's an issue. And we see this sometimes. We, we see problems within our church leadership. Some problems are smaller, uh, like in, they insist on using terminology like uh, do in life or like love on. I'm going to love on you. You're like, whoa. What? Like, well, that's, that's weird. And you're like, okay, hey, that's really strange. Sometimes this, the, the problems are a little bit bigger. Like they punch you in the chest uh, because you're smart. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's an issue. Uh, we see issues in, in our leadership. They, they've overlooked us, right? Some of us come from backgrounds where we had church leadership, a youth leader or a pastor who, who just didn't even give us the time of day. So, sometimes we've, we've been seen and yet they just dismiss us. Right? Sometimes we've seen church leadership fall and fail uh, morally. Right? We've seen them fall into moral failure. Even here at Grace, about 11 years ago, our head pastor uh, left because he had an affair. Moral failure. We see this everywhere. No church is immune. But the beauty is that even in the midst of that, even in the midst of that terrible, depressing fact that all People are still just people, even if they work at a church. The beauty is that we have a great high priest who is over even the greatest of our leaders. All semester we've been walking through the book of Hebrews, and we've been doing so in an attempt to understand who Jesus is and, and what he's done. It's the main point of the entire book. And as we've been walking through, we're kind of living in the midst of a culture, in the midst of a society that, that's telling us that we deserve the best. And so we want to be the best. Or we want to have the best. Or we want to know what's best. But the reality is that the book of Hebrews tells us that no matter what anyone thinks or says or does, that Jesus is always better. He's always better. This morning we're in chapter 7 where we're going to see the, the author use the historical figure of Melchizedek. The guy that we've seen pop up time and time again through the book, we're finally going to actually land on him and look at what he did. And he's going to use Melchizedek as an example to demonstrate that even compared to our greatest priest that we've ever seen, which is Melchizedek, even compared to our greatest priest, Jesus is still better. Not only because of what he's done, but because of what he is. Now we have to understand as we walk through this book that there's a context that we have to keep in mind, right? We have to remember our context to, to make sense of the content that we go through. The, the first context we need to remember is that we are looking at uh, an audience that is most likely a group of Jewish believers, 
So they have a Jewish background. They've, they've been taught Judaism. They know uh, the history of Israel, uh, of Yahweh. And these people are living in probably about the early 60s AD, and they're facing persecution. They're heading towards a dark time. And so the author has been writing to them and giving them uh, words of wisdom and direction on on how to navigate the the waters that they're about to enter. He's been telling them a lot about Christ, right? We've looked at how Jesus is is better than historical figures like Isaac. He's better uh, than historical figures like Moses. He's better uh, than the idols that we create for ourselves. He's better than the identities that we wrap ourselves up in. And what we see here, though, is a passage that's following directly after he talks about how Jesus Christ is our high priest. Remember a few weeks ago, we told us he's our high priest who is currently in heaven securing our salvation. And in the meantime, we're called to press towards maturity. We're called to be responsible with the faith that we've been given and press forward in growth. But the entire time we remember that that Christ is still working on our behalf. Even in the midst of our failure, Christ is securing our salvation. He's, He's there, our representative before the Lord. And so the author is going to wrap up kind of his little, his chunk on Christ's role as high priest by finally explaining that stinking Melchizedek guy that we've seen pop up over and over and over again. He pops up again in verse, or chapter 7 where it says that for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to, to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Okay, what? what? Slaughter of Kings? That's a sweet band name, but it's a weird event, right? What is, what's going, what is he talking about? He, he, Abraham kills people, and then the, uh, he gives money to Melchizedek. To, to understand this, we've got to go back. Genesis 14 is what he's quoting. Genesis 14, this chunk, this is the one and only time we see Melchizedek actually appear. He's referenced in Psalm 110 that we'll look at here in a minute, and he's referenced in Hebrews. But the only time we actually see what he did is right here, where it says that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was priest of God most high. And he blessed him, being Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So right off the bat, we're seeing, okay, Melchizedek was this guy who was a king in Salem. Salem is actually the area that eventually becomes Jerusalem. So he's a, a king in what will be the promised land. And, and he's there, and at one point, Abraham goes, uh, then Abraham, he goes and rescues his uh, nephew Lot from a bunch of bad dudes. And so he, like, kills a bunch of guys. And then he gets away from it, and Melchizedek just pops up out of nowhere. And is like, hey, nice work. And Abraham's like, thanks. And then he gives them. 10% of everything that he owns. So right off the bat, what we see happening and what the author is going to make an argument for uh, in the next few verses is that Abraham himself, Abraham placed himself underneath Melchizedek. The first thing that makes Melchizedek so amazing, so great, is the fact that Abram placed himself under Melchizedek. Because he gave him a tenth of everything. When you do that, he's paying tribute to Melchizedek. He's essentially saying, you are above me. You're, you're in a greater station than me. And the author of Hebrews, we're not going to read the verses, but he goes verses 4 through 10 of chapter 7. He explains that because Abraham did this, that then all of his descendants are underneath Melchizedek, even the priests. He says even the, the, the tribe of Levi, the, all the priests that we know, they are underneath Melchizedek because their forefather placed himself 
under Melchizedek, and it just kind of trickles down. Right? The same sort of way that my wife and I, we both went to Texas A&M University. And because of that, we've had to calmly explain to our daughter, Charlotte, that she will have to go to Texas A&M University. Like, that's just the way it is. And she's clicking her heels with joy. She's like, woo! Like, she's excited. She can't wait. We have placed ourselves under that authority. Some of you had parents that they placed themselves under Texas A&M. They said, and so shall it be for all of my descendants. Like, they know... That that's the way it's just going to go. That was it. Like, you didn't even know other colleges existed until right now. I just told you. And you're like, what? Right? But we, we see this in our lives. The, the, he's saying, look, that's what Abraham did. Abraham placed himself underneath Melchizedek by paying him tribute. And so, therefore, everyone else is under Melchizedek. So, the first thing that makes Melchizedek so amazing is that Abraham paid him tithes. But it's more than that. Melchizedek is also amazing because he's both priest and king. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. The author explains the word Melchizedek, the name Melchizedek. It is literally a combination. You're taking two Hebrew words, jamming them together, king and righteousness. And you just slam them together and you make Melchizedek. And so he's saying that this is a king who's also the priest of the Lord Most High. This is an amazing, incredibly unique thing. This is an incredible combination that we don't see before him, that we don't see after him. Even the greatest kings of Israel, David, Solomon, they had separate priests. They were not king and priest. That is reserved only for Melchizedek. And and that's that's an amazing combination. It's sort of like, you know, it's great. It's great if you're a Girl Scout. Like that's Solid, awesome. How, just, I'm just curious. How many of us in here were Girl Scouts at some point? Oh, are you serious? That is a ton. Well, good job. You can tie knots for me, I guess. I don't know. They do. Uh, they, it's great to be a Girl Scout, right? It, it's also great if you sell cookies. You know, like that's, a, that's a fun thing that you can do. Uh, if you bake them yourself, you can even make a, probably a tidy profit. But if you are a Girl Scout who sells cookies... That is an incredible combination <laughs> that is a cut above. Like, that is something extra special uh, to where creepy women watch you from the darkness because they're so <laughs> excited <laughs> by your cookies. They're like, <laughs> just waiting, waiting to pounce on those cookies, right? There's something extra special. It's great to be a Girl Scout. It's great to sell cookies. But when you're both, man, that, that's something else entirely. That's what Melchizedek is. He's not only king, he's not only priest, he's king and priest. He's both at once. And this puts him above anyone else that we've seen. Sets him in his own kind of standing. Man, it's, it's amazing. So he's over Abraham. Abraham paid him tithes. He's both king and priest. But the clincher, the biggest thing, the, the key factor, the key characteristic of Melchizedek that the author is going to land on and tell us, this is why I keep using him. This is why he's so great. This is why Christ is like him, is verse 3. He says, Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So what, what's happening? Some scholars, they will take this to mean that Melchizedek was literally uh, eternal. 
that he had no father, no mother. In other words, they would, they would argue that he is a Christophany. Christophany is our term for an Old Testament appearance of Christ. There are certain times that Christ made himself manifest. Uh, we theorize, ma- made himself manifest in the Old Testament, uh, and we call him a Christophany. So some people say, well, that's what Melchizedek was. He was a Christophany. Uh, and that's fine. You know, some people go that direction. Uh, I, I don't think the evidence is there, though. Like, I, I think uh, you kind of have to stretch. The burden of proof, I believe, is on those people, and I, I haven't seen the proof. So instead, I, I land in the camp. I'll plant my flag. I won't die on this hill, but I, I'm standing on the hill of saying that it's merely telling us that, that we don't know his genealogy. We don't know his mom. We don't know his dad, right? None of those things are recorded. The only time we see him pop up in the Old Testament, we read it, man. That was it. Those three verses, that was it. We don't know where he came from. We don't know where he went. It's not recorded in our scripture. And I think that's what the author is pulling out. He's saying, look, Melchizedek, he he just kind of popped up this one time. He had this isolated story. And in doing so, it gives him the appearance. It gives him, he resembles eternity. He resembles the Son of God. Right? Because if you just kind of pop up out of nowhere and then disappear, like it, it gives you a, a legendary status. Right? Like if you just kind of think, oh, he just disappeared into the night. It's like, wow. It's like Batman, you know, but, but king and priest and Batman. Like the triple, like that'd be amazing, right? That's what he is. He, he's taken on this new status because it's just not, we don't know what happened to him. He's like, he's like your dog that went on to live on that farm somewhere. Right? He's there. <laughs> maybe uh, but uh, what, what do we know in reality in reality well he's probably quite dead but you know that's that's just kind of the way that's the way it goes but but we know we give them though this this mysterious kind of stats say no like he, i don't know he went he went away and it it lets us look at him in a new light it gives him a, a legendary type stats it gives him uh, almost like a an eternal status it says it's he resembling the son of god he continues a priest forever. But the difference between Melchizedek and Jesus is that Jesus is actually eternal. (laughs) But this one, Christ, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn you will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus is better than the greatest priest we've ever seen, than the greatest king priest, than the greatest figure in Melchizedek we've ever seen. Jesus is better because he actually is eternal, because he actually is forever. This is what puts him in the order of Melchizedek. That's the line right after forever, that period. It says in the order of Melchizedek. That's what puts him in that ranking the fact that he's eternal. And that's what allows him to guarantee to us a better covenant, a new covenant, something that we are going to talk about. If you're in our, in our grow groups, you're going to talk about it this Thursday. Uh, we're going to talk about it in here in three weeks when we're back from spring break. A new covenant, a better covenant that's only made possible by the fact that Jesus is eternal. This is key, and and the author is going to land on this, and he's going to hammer in this point. He's going to make us really sit and think about the fact that Christ is eternal. That's huge. That has incredibly large implications for us, for our lives, knowing that Jesus Christ is forever. The author breaks it down into three kind of things that that we benefit from, three, three things that he gives us by being eternal. He gives us a better comfort. 
He's going to give us a better hope. He's going to give us a better purpose. All because he is our eternal forever priest. He gives us a, a better comfort that he, that he begins to outline in verse 23. He says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Christ holds his priesthood permanently because Jesus Christ continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, what we're seeing is he is always there. He's always fighting on our behalf, and this should comfort us. He saves us to the uttermost. In other words, he saves us to completion for forever. That's what's being communicated. Our salvation is eternal. There's nothing that will take it away. There's nothing that will change it. That salvation is secure. He's our representative before the Lord. And our guilt can just go away. I mean, we don't need to feel shame about our failures. We should feel convicted. The Lord will convict us and steer us towards repentance. But the shame that lingers, the guilt that we just hold on to, the beating ourselves up, that it's unnecessary. It's foolish. Because Christ has saved us to the uttermost. We don't have to be afraid that our failures will one day add up to a point that's too great for Christ to handle. I mean, this is the This is the key to our gospel. The fact that anyone can realize that that their sin in their life, the sin in the world, that that the only solution is not found by human hands. It's not found by works. When when I realize that I can't just clean myself up and get better or pray certain things or do certain things to impress the Lord, when I realize in that moment the only thing that can save me is my faith in Jesus Christ. The only thing that can save me is if I trust in Jesus Christ, God who stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live, die, and resurrect for me. If I trust in him, if I believe in, believe in him, if I ask for the forgiveness found in him, only then am I saved. It's by faith, not by works. No one can boast. It's a gift from the Lord. And it's only made possible by the fact that Jesus is eternal. That he's always fighting on my behalf. That he continues forever. But it does more than just take away our guilt. It, it takes away our worry. Right? These, we are now able, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, we are now allowed to draw near to God through him. We are able to approach the throne of the Lord with confidence. In other words, we don't have to worry about our present issues. There's something bigger that we're chasing. We, we have a new perspective on our present issues when we compare it with eternity. Man, that, that's a whole new lens, a whole new perspective on, on our lives. I, I asked my wife, Susan, uh, this past week, I said, hey, what's, you know, what, what about the fact that we are headed towards eternity? Like, what does that do for you? Like, wh- what does that change in your thought process? Like, how do you, how do you live? How do you react to the fact that uh, Jesus Christ is, is forever, that we're headed towards a foreverness, an eternal salvation? And she kind of thought about it for a second, and she told me, well, I... I don't worry about the carpet, or I don't worry about the wine on the carpet or the dents in the wall, because uh, we live in a frat house uh, and we know how to party, right? That's that's where our, that's how we live. Uh, wine on the carpet and dents in the wall. That just those both happened to happen this past week. Uh, and she said, you know, I don't I don't worry about that. She says I, I realize that there's something greater. 
we find ourselves getting caught up in worrying about the organization that we're trying to join or the, the school or the project or, or the work that we're enrolled in or the relationship that we're trying to start. And man, we should be responsible with those things. Right? We absolutely should be doing all things for the glory of the Lord. We should be giving our all to our work and to our school, to our relationships. Absolutely. The Lord calls us to faithfulness. He blesses faithfulness. He's disappointed when we're not faithful. But that's not our end-all, be-all. Those things are not where we're headed. We have to remember that we are headed towards eternity. And if we are able to stay calm in those small things, it uh, helps us, it trains us to be calm in the bigger things. That's why it's so important to realize, I mean, I don't need to worry about these smaller issues because, man, the reality is that even on this earth, I'm going to face bigger issues. But if I'm calm now, it'll, it'll help me be calm when those bigger storms hit. Christ's eternal, eternal nature, I mean, it allows us to, to be comforted. It takes away that, that guilt. It takes away that worry. But it also doesn't, it doesn't just give us a better comfort. It gives us a better hope. It says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. In other words, he's saying we have a hope where? In, in heaven. He has been exalted above the heavens. We can leave the guilt of our past, the worries of our present, and we live differently in light of the hope of our future. We should be different because we are people with hope. We live this out. We live this out when we find ourselves at the end of high school, right? Senior year, the very end of it, generally rolls around. People call it what? Senioritis. They're like, oh no, you got senioritis. <laughs> I'm 40, uh, you know, and they think it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, senioritis. And so we hear this, man, but, but what is that really? It's people who realize, wow, I don't have to worry about these things. I remember that moment for me when I found out the final six weeks, that final six weeks of my high school, uh, the grades were locked. My transcript was done. It did not affect me at all. And suddenly, the freedom that I felt was overwhelming, we live differently. We realize I don't need to worry about these things because I have a different future. I have a hope in my future. I asked Susan, hey, what, what did you do? What, 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 how did you feel? Like, how did senioritis affect you? What, what did you do differently knowing that you were almost out of high school, that you were headed towards college? She said, well, my friends and I, uh, we put on our homecoming dresses and we watched The Bachelor. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't know how that's connected, but <laughs> great. Like, that's awesome, you know? But we do this. We live differently because we have a hope. We forget these things behind us. We do something different. That's who we are. As believers, we have a new hope. Christ is eternal. He's forever. And he gives us not only a new, better comfort, he gives us a better hope. This is so evident. This comes into light so strongly when we see how temporary this world is. This is accentuated when we see the fleeting nature of our current existence. A couple weeks ago, one of our staff members, uh, Sarah DeSosa, who's worked in the college ministry for a long time, number of years, 
Her and her husband uh, have been around for a long time. Uh, he, David helps with coffee in the back every single week. They're wonderful, and they were expecting their son uh, to come during spring break. But two weeks ago, when they were eight months pregnant, uh, they lost him. And going to his service, going to his graveside, was heartbreaking. But what was so incredible in that moment, in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that pain that I can't even, I can't even imagine, is there was, there was hope. His grandparents stood up and read a passage from Scripture. They read a psalm and they said, we are just grateful that the Lord is trustworthy, that the God is love, and that even when we don't understand what's going on, that he does. At, at the graveside, we don't have to mourn and weep like those without hope. That's what Christ tells us. We don't have to, we don't have to mourn like those people. We have hope. We're headed towards eternity. Our high priest lives forever. And because of that, we're different. We're different. The author says, we've, we've got to realize this. We've got we've to land on this. We've got to understand that, that the law, it, it appoints men and their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, it appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Forever. We have a hope. And, and I'll tell you, we need to be living differently. We need to be longing for eternity. That's another big part of of what we have. Because of that hope, we should be longing for eternity. We should be longing for that day when Jesus Christ returns, when every knee will bow, when every tongue will confess that he is Lord, when the brokenness of this world is over, when the death of this world is over, when the sin of this world is over. We should be longing for that. Christ himself, last prayer he gives before his death, he closes it out asking that the Lord would end this existence. That that day in our future would come quickly. That Christ would return. Another friend of mine here on staff, one of our pastors, we're having lunch. And we were talking about uh, just kind of what had been going on in our lives and where things had been headed. And, and he uh, he was telling me about the fact that, you know, he's been a Christian for a long time, uh, got saved when he was really little, and if people ever asked him, like, hey, uh, do you, you know, are you looking forward to eternity, like, are you looking forward to revelation and the end of times? And he would be like, yeah, absolutely. Like, he would have told people, absolutely, I, I cannot wait for Christ to return. And yeah, he said, he admitted that, you know, subconsciously, like many of us, subconsciously, he thought, but I kind of want to get a few things done first, right? Like, I want to accomplish these things. Like, I want to go ahead and get married and do that whole thing. Like, I want to, you know, maybe have kids. I want to get a job. Like, in his mind, kind of on a subconscious level, he thought, there are certain things that I want to do before that happens, right? There's certain things that I want to accomplish. But a while back, a few months ago, he, his wife and he, they had their second kid, and, and their son, uh, man, he's, he's just had a lot of medical issues. And, and he's, uh, they're, they're still not really sure what it is. They can't perform a lot of tests because he's so small, and and the issues that he has, they, they know pretty much for a fact that his mobility is going to be very uh, hurt. Like he probably won't be able to walk ever. And, and there's just there's certain neurological things and, and physical things that, that are messing him up. And, and my friend, his dad, said, you know, 
as soon as I saw these difficulties, as soon as I saw the, the issues within my son's life, the brokenness in his body, I said, I have truly pushed aside every other desire. I've pushed aside every desire for accomplishments, for things to do, and I long for eternity. Says I long for that day when Christ comes back, when, when creation is restored, and when my son can walk the way that God intended him to. Says I await that day, I pray for that day. That should be us. We should be longing for eternity. We have a hope, we have a comfort, and those things give us a purpose, a better purpose. The author explains that the point in what we are saying is this, that we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He's making a reference, he'll explain a little bit further. He's talking about the tabernacle. The, the, the temple to the Lord, there was a big tent that the Israelites carried through the desert. They would set up every once in a while that Moses created and through the Lord's instructions. He says, we don't go to that. We don't have to worry about the tabernacle. We don't have to worry about the temple. Why? Because we have a high priest in the true tent, in the true throne room that the Lord set up. In other words, we live in a world that is a fleeting shadow in the light of eternity. And if we truly grab a hold of that, if we truly believe that, there should always be a desperation in our preaching. We should be so strongly motivated, so greatly encouraged and pushed to share the gospel with the people around us. If we truly believe that this world is coming to an end, that the only hope is found in Jesus Christ, how could we not tell our family, our friends, our coworkers? How could we not? The author uses the tabernacle as an example because he knows his audience are Jewish believers, people whose friends and family members are still Jews committed to Judaism, committed to a way of life, to a system, to a law that is dead, a law that does not save. These people that are reading this, that are hearing this letter, I mean, they immediately think of their friends or their dad or their uncle or whoever it is that's still stuck in the way of death and the, the useless pursuit of the law. Those things, they don't go anywhere. There's no comfort in that. There's no hope in that. Therefore, our purpose is to move into those people's lives. Share with them the hope. Share with them the gospel. That's why here in a moment, we're going to take communion. We're going to have some stations set up. interns or fellows and and leaders are going to kind of help direct you around the room Uh, and i'll tell you we do this not not because it's some sort of mystical thing that that helps us or that's what saves us or anything like that we do it because it's a remembrance of what christ has done it's a way that we remember christ's sacrifice we remember 
the fact that he has given us a new comfort and a new hope. The fact that he has given us a purpose. We come together as a body to take communion for that, for that reason. And it's for the same reason. It's this hope. It's, it's this purpose. It's what, it's what brought us here. It's what brought our, our body together. And we did this last week. I want to do it again this week. Uh, something a little bit different. Uh, where we're not just going to kind of coast out through the rest of the service. We're not going to just you know, sing a few songs or pray to ourselves, take communion. We're, we're going to pray with each other. Scripture tells us that there is power in our prayers for one another. James commands us to pray for one another. The Lord is faithful to answer those prayers. So what you're going to do here in a moment is find a partner, one or two. You might know them. You might not. That's okay. If you don't know them, find out their name because that will help things be less awkward. And you're going to pray for each other. And you're going to share with that person or those two people Try to keep it small, because otherwise it's crazy and it takes forever. You're going to share with that person uh, what you want the Lord to remind you of this week. What, he, what you want him to stir in your heart. Is it that comfort that you've lost sight of? Is there worry and guilt weighing you down? Is it the hope? Are you realizing that, that there is a, a way that you should be living that's different than the world around you? There's a hope that you have that other people don't have that's, is that what the Lord needs to reveal to you to, to really hammer in? Or is it that purpose? Do you want the Lord to use this week to give you a renewed sense of purpose, a renewed motivation to start a conversation with that lab mate, that roommate, the family member? Share with one another. Where is it that you want the Lord to be working on you this week? And I'll wrap this up here in a minute. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for this body. God, we thank you that there are brothers and sisters found in you. That, God, it's not just uh, a faith of isolation. That, God, it's not just what can we do or say or think to get ourselves closer to you. God, we thank you that there are, there are people alongside of us who are struggling with the same things. That, God, are, are striving forward in the same areas. God, we ask that we would be faithful to pray for one another, with one another. If you would, take a moment now and pray for the DeSosa family, for Sarah and David, uh, who are hurting and confused and yet trying to, to hold on to that hope, trying to feel the Lord's comfort. Pray, pray that they would be comforted by the Lord. Pray that they would have a hope that they would see the Lord's purpose in the midst of this confusion. Pray for them right now.